welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas, and we are your hosts for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not the typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we're talking to Dr. Mark Goulston. Mark is an American-trained psychiatrist, host of the My Wake Up Call podcast, and author of seven books, including Just Listen, Discover the Secret to Getting Through to Absolutely Anyone. And he's also contributed to the Harvard Business Review, Business Insider, and Fast Company. Hi, Mark. Thanks very much for coming on the show with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Perhaps before we start, could you set the scene for our listeners of what they can expect to get out of listening to this podcast with you today? Well, it's titled How to Think Like Elon Musk, but really what it is is how do you think like a visionary? Visionaries have a a different way of looking and thinking about the world. And if you're planning to be an entrepreneur or if you're planning to be innovative, if you're planning to be disruptive, you might learn something if you learned how to think like a visionary. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll walk away with actual tactics you can try that will help you do that. Fantastic. Looking forward to it very much. So if we take a step back now, you've had a very interesting path to where, to where you are today. Can you tell us a bit about that journey? Well, I was trained as a psychiatrist and I was a specialist in suicide prevention, and I wasn't a researcher. What would happen is researchers would send me their children they were worried about, and it was interesting. This is what you run up against if you're, I guess, an entrepreneur or an innovator, and I didn't know that I was one, is I would say, because none of my patients killed themselves in 30 years, and I said, do you want to know what I do or help me figure out how I do it? And some of these researchers, professors would say, well, if it's not evidence-based, we can't look at it. And if you don't have a control group, I say, well, my control group is what you do at the university, and it doesn't work that well because you don't have a perfect record. And and then they said, no, sorry, we can't do it because, you know, we're evidence-based. And I said, why do you send me your kids? And they say, because you have this reputation that if you send people to see Mark, they don't kill themselves, and I love my kids. So I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and went back to being this suicide uh, interventionist. And I'll tell you what I discovered, because it's, it's going to lead into how to think like a visionary. Very early on, and you can do this, by the way, if you're worried about someone in your life, if you have a friend, a family member, and they seem in a dark place, and they seem stuck, and, and they don't want, don't want to talk, um, what I started to notice is that if I was there with a suicidal patient and I was checking boxes, how's your sleep? Are you taking medicine? Have you had suicidal thoughts? When I'd look into their eyes, their eyes would be telling me, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. That's what their eyes were telling me. And so I had to make a decision to either hide behind my clipboard and check boxes or throw away the boxes and just listen into their eyes. So 
so I threw away the boxes and I listened into their eyes. And I will tell you, if you have any friend or family member who's in distress and you listen into their eyes with no other purpose but to help them feel less pain, they are screaming out at you through their eyes, hurt, fear, and anger. And when people see that you're noticing that and you're not scared away, they lean back into what you're looking at and they often start to cry and they cry with relief. So uh, people may be thinking, well, that may apply to a friend of mine, but how does that apply to being an entrepreneur? Well, I think it applies greatly because as one of my mentors, a fellow named Warren Bennis, if you look him up, he's one of the uh, gurus of leadership in the world. He died several years ago, but he gave me this quote. And so here's one of the takeaways that people should write down. He said, try to be a first-class noticer. Because when you notice things, it's different than looking, watching, or seeing. When you look, watch, or see, you're an observer. You're passive. But when you notice, you lean into it. So, for instance, I'm noticing that we have different accents. And I'm noticing that I could either think, gee, they're foreign. Or I could notice and say, oh, no, they're listening to me. I'm the one who's foreign. And, uh, and what visionaries have in common is they are first-class noticers. Um, I toured for about a year and a half playing Steve Jobs coming back from the dead. And, I, and you can look up Mark Goulston, Steve Jobs on YouTube, and you'll find all kinds of video clips. And I had the turtleneck on. I had the uh, glasses on. And one of the main, uh, one of the main reasons I did that was to tee up another takeaway that I think is worth writing down. So the first takeaway is be a first-class noticer. Uh, the other takeaway is uh, I, I read up on Steve Jobs, and there was a special incident that happened in his life when he went to Xerox Park and discovered the graphical user interface. And the graphical user interface was the mouse and icons. And if you do a search on YouTube under Steve Jobs Xerox Park, that's P-A-R-C, National Geographic, you'll see a two-minute dramatization of Steve Jobs discovering the graphical user interface. And what you'll notice in his face, and so I did this whole presentation for an hour and a half playing Steve Jobs coming back from the dead to tee up this two-minute video. And what you'll notice in his face, and here's what you're going to write down, is... When he, is, when he first lays eyes on the, uh, on the graphical user interface, he's looking very skeptical. He's being very Steve Jobs cynical. And when he first lays eyes on it, you look into his eyes and he goes, whoa, W-H-O-A. Like, whoa, that just broke through my cynicism like a sledgehammer. And then what happens is he starts to walk towards the technician using the graphical user interface, and he says, can I try it? And then he sits down. This is, um, I'm replaying the video, but you can go watch it. Uh, he starts playing with the mouse, 
music actually goes up. He starts to sweat. And after, whoa, I can't believe what I just saw, he experiences wow. And what is wow? This is astonishing. This is amazing. This is unbelievable. So, whoa, I can't believe what I'm seeing, reading, or hearing. Make sure your marketing people uh, are able to generate that in your customers. And then the wow is this is unbelievable, amazing, astonishing. And then he plays with it. And in the video, uh, his co-founder Wozniak is in the background and he looks back at Wozniak and, and the real Wozniak actually says something on the video. And, and the third step after woe and wow is hmm, H-M-M-M. And hmm means uh, there's something here. This is too good to ignore. I don't know what we're going to do with this, but this is too good to forget. And he looks back at Wozniak, and inside the video, Wozniak uh, says, when he looked back at me, I said to him, once they go here, they're not going back. Meaning, once they discover the mouse, they're not going to uh, go back to typing. And then the final uh, step is yes. And so it ends, the video clip ends with Walter Isaacson, who wrote a book on Steve Jobs, saying they didn't know what to do with this at Xerox Park, uh, but Steve Jobs went back to Apple and together they created the Macintosh. So what you want to do as an entrepreneur is you want to recreate that experience that Steve Jobs had when he first laid eyes on the graphical user interface. And he actually recreates that, and they're trying to keep up the tradition every time they introduce a new product. Every presentation that Steve Jobs made, and now with the new iPhone 12, they're trying to do it again. They're trying to trigger in customers, whoa, wow, hmm, yes. And, and, they, and they do an amazing job. So if you're marketing if you want to uh, uh, get your product or service out to your customer, make sure that, that you're triggering that reaction because let's face it, everybody in the world is distracted. Everybody in the world probably has attention deficit disorder. And it's tough to grab their attention. So unless you're creating whoa, wow, hmm, yes, what you're creating in them is nah, no thanks, never mind, goodbye. Now, you've, you've had a very interesting journey to where you are now, Mark. Can you tell us a bit more about how you went from suicide intervention specialist to someone who's really interested in visionary entrepreneurs? I think what happened is I didn't know it, but I guess I was a first-class noticer. And, uh, and initially what I was noticing, as I said, as a suicide specialist, is that my patients were screaming out at me in their eyes, uh, help me, I can't help myself, and I'm running out of time. But then I started to realize uh, wherever I went, I could notice things that were obvious to me, but other people weren't seeing And so what happens is I begin to notice, uh, and they turned out to be relevant. 
So a little story, uh, one of the segues that I think jump-started me from going from an in-his-office psychiatrist seeing suicidal patients is I, I crossed over and I expanded and became an FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer. And one of the, and I actually, there's some videos up on YouTube about that. And one of the things that I did that became my signature presentation, uh, because I was noticing in trainings, and this doesn't just apply to training FBI and police, but you know, when you're doing trainings, what's really challenging is to engage the people you're training. This is true all through companies, large and small. You're always going to have the early adopters. And so those people are there. They're eager to be there. You're going to have the laggards at the other end of the bell-shaped curve. And those are people you probably should be thinking of getting rid of. And then the people in the middle are just kind of regular people, uh, but that's the majority of people. And then you have to find a way to engage them. So uh, I had some friends who were uh, police officers and FBI, and I noticed some of their trainings and and I noticed that it wasn't really getting through to people. So my trainings were kind of interesting in the way in that I w- what would happen is I would uh, I would do a role play, and then obviously that led to me doing the Steve Jobs role play. So I do a lot of role playing because I seem to be able to get where people are coming from. And in the FBI police hostage negotiation training, what I would do is I would be in front of these uh, these officers and FBI negotiators, and I'd have a suit on, and I'd take my suit jacket off, and underneath I had a police, uh, a police shirt. I hadn't shaved for a week and a half. I put on glasses one of the, with one of the pieces glasses uh, broken. And then I said, I am the uh, officer in your department who shot the unarmed kid last year. And I've been on medical leave for a year. And then I pull a gun out and I hold it to my neck. And I say, um, uh, and unless you talk me out of it, I'm going on permanent leave and then you live with the ghost of someone that you couldn't save. And this time it's one of your own. And then I would just engage them. I mean, and no matter what they did, I just uh, threw to the side whatever they said. So that got them fully engaged. And then from that position of that suicidal police officer, I was able to say, this is what you could have said that you didn't say. This is what you could have asked that you didn't ask. So what happened is, is I started to get, overcome a little of my being an introvert, which I still am. Uh, I'm even an introvert on this podcast, but when it's showtime, I do my best to show up. Um, uh, and so I went out in the world and I just started to notice all these things that other people weren't seeing and that they had application. So if you go to LinkedIn now, here's something else. Because um, my, my LinkedIn profile has been a moving target for me for years. But I've settled on something that I think I'm going to stay with. Uh, and you'll understand why when I tell you. 
So if you go to my LinkedIn profile, it says 360 degree aspirational executive coaching. Now that's a mouthful, but really what it means is I am identifying the leaders that the world needs and helping them to be the best that they can be. And it's aspirational because my coaching clients seek me out. A lot of executive coaching is done in a, almost a punitive remedial way because a company will say to a high-performing executive who's uh, being mean or rough on other people and exposing the company to possible harassment claims, they'll say to that executive, you need coaching. And really what it is, is the company doesn't want to lose someone who makes them a lot of money or who has the secret to all the IT formula, uh, but they don't want to get a harassment suit from another employee. And so in the past, when people were assigned to me, I had mixed results, but many of them were arrogant. And as I got older, I decided I don't want to help people that I can't root for. And I don't root for people who are arrogant, who hurt other people. Part of that's my psychiatry background. There's not, you can't pay me enough money to help someone who hurts other people and takes delight in it. And so what's happened is over time, people have found out that I could help them be incredible leaders that inspire people, uh, that motivate people by people just feeling it was an honor to work under those leaders. So that was another transition for me is that I was noticing, and I'm especially noticing in the world, that we need leaders that we can look up to, that we have trust in, we have confidence in, we respect, we feel proud, we feel it's an honor to have them as the leader of our company. And so that's what my current focus is because uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not that young, and the world, as I see it, needs better leaders. Mark, there's many interesting things that you have mentioned for us to pick up on. So let's dig a little deeper into some of the things that you've said. So you mentioned the four steps to success as the whoa, wow, hum, and yes. And you talked about it as um, entrepreneurs should be thinking about this if they're developing products and also their marketing departments should be. So this advice is powerful in that it is simple, um, that they should be thinking of these four phrases. How do you recommend that that entrepreneurs implement this in practice, those founders who are developing products as a sort of co-founding team, how do they actually implement this? Well, I think what's helpful is if you can give the entrepreneur the whoa, wow, hmm, yes, experience themselves, uh, and then it's much easier to convert them into seeing how important it is. So there's also something that I coach entrepreneurs on uh, startups in early stage, which is how do you get investors to fund you? And I, I actually gave a talk in Moscow uh, last October, and I was one of the featured speakers along with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And we spoke to about a thousand Russian managers and CEOs. And 
if you're wanting to get investors to invest in you, and if you're listening in and you're in a sales position and you're trying to sell something, especially if it's a B2B sale, what you should notice is uh, that the person you're speaking to is afraid to say yes. And they're afraid to say yes because if they say yes, they run the risk of then going back to someone in their company and looking at them like they're an idiot. You said yes to this? What were you thinking? And so when you're talking to any potential investor, they've had that experience of having said yes to something and then gone back to their company and uh, and had a superior look at them like they didn't have any judgment. So what you really want to do when you're presenting anything to another person is you want to make them afraid to say no. And so what would cause an investor or if you're in B2B sales, what would cause a customer to be afraid to say no? So you can understand they'd be afraid to say yes if they said yes and then someone above them questioned their judgment or thought that they weren't thinking uh, or even you know uh, jumped on them. Uh, why would they be afraid to say no? Well, investors are in the business of investing. They're in the business of investing their money. They don't just keep their money. They're looking for investments. And so an investor would be afraid to say no if they pass on your company and then six months later someone else, a competitor to that investor, invests in your company and it's a huge success. So they'd be afraid to say no if they're missing out on something that could be a game changer for that company. So these are things that you want to bring out into the open. And so one of the ways to do that when I'm coaching people on how to sell or how to pitch is actually to bring that out in the open. And if you're one-on-one with someone as opposed to pitching to a group. But if you're one-on-one with someone, if you can weave into the conversation, tell me about the best business decision you've made. You know, And if they feel awkward, you can say, I'll tell you about my best business decision. You don't want to just keep make them feel uncomfortable. Tell me about the best business decision. And then you drill down and you drill down what made it so and how much of it was luck and how much of it was it And what did you notice that helped you make that business decision? So you're getting them to talk about the best yes they've ever said. And then you say, you know, uh, tell me about the worst business decision you've ever made. And then it's helpful if you share your own so that they don't just feel alone, uh, you know, burying their neck. And then you want to drill down and say, what made that the worst business decision? And then you might say, have you ever made a business decision that was so awful that after you made it and you got into so much trouble, you said to yourself, I can't go through that again. So what you're bringing out into the open is all their psychology about saying yes and saying no. And then uh, then 
what you bring to their attention is, in our conversation, are you listening or are you noticing what I'm saying in our conversation uh, and hoping it'll be something you can say yes to that was like your best business decision? And are you especially listening to see if it'll be a bad business decision? So what you've done is you've brought out into the conversation something that is not transactional. You, you have just opened up their mind and their thinking. And then you drill down into uh, uh, what you have and why it would be a great business decision. I'll tell you something that I do. And as a result of it, I have amazing relationships with people. Uh, when I go through that drill with people, uh, sometimes I will say to the person, you know, hiring me would not be a good business decision. And they look at me, they go, what? I said, you yeah, hiring me would not be a good business decision now because you've just revealed three other things that you better take care of. And if you don't take care of these other three things, uh, not only aren't you going to succeed, you may not survive. And by the way, if you don't have those people, I make introductions. I have those people, but you better take care of those things, and then you can talk about hiring me. And what happens, I will tell you, it takes all the pressure off of me to have to sell and close, and the trust that it builds in the other person is huge, Plus, I do have those people, so I can bring those other people in and make introductions. Uh, and, and then when I make introductions of those people, those people are often very grateful to me. You know, they want to find out, gee, Mark, this is, this is so generous. What do you do? So if you're early in your career, I, I hope you're taking something from what I'm getting about how to how to make it a less stressful, more rewarding life that's in front of you. Um, because I think if you build trust and confidence from people, you can always go back to them. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic takeaway for entrepreneurs listening to this. Um, if I might take this on a slight tangent, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, your experience of founders who have seen failure. Um, failure is not something that's often talked about in entrepreneurship, but we believe that it should be and it's an, a powerful tool for people to learn from. Um, so we were wondering, uh, what are some tangible lessons from failures of a venture or a founder that perhaps you have mentored that you might be able to share with us so that entrepreneurs can be learning from it? Absolutely. In fact, here's another takeaway quote that uh, hopefully, uh, you know, there's been at least a few things that people have taken notes on that they can use. One of the differences between a successful founder or visionary and one who's not, and you have to ask yourself about this, successful entrepreneurs and visionaries uh, they see the unknown as an adventure to be lived. They see the unknown as an adventure to be lived. 
everybody else sees the unknown as danger to be avoided. So one of the things about Steve Jobs and Elon Musk is they see the unknown as a huge adventure. And since many people are seeing it as danger, it's theirs for the taking. And so they're able to notice things that nobody else notices and and, and it draws them towards it. And again, as I mentioned before, uh, they can be divergent in their thinking. They can go deeply into whatever that is, and then uh, they'll become successful if they can then come back and become focused and turn into a product. So I, I think you have to ask yourself, uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur, um, what's your relationship to the unknown? Here's another way in which I open some of my talks to impress upon people how it's important to have an open mindset or what they call a growth mindset uh, as opposed to a fixed mindset. And it's a demonstration to the audience how all of us can have times when we have an open mindset and times when we have a closed mindset. And so I say to the audience, I'm going to share a quote with you that none of you have ever heard. Uh, and then they look at me, and again, they're skeptical. And I say, here's the quote, and you've never heard it. If you give a person a fish, you feed them for a day. If you teach a person to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. And then when I look at the audience, they start to get smug. They look at each other. They smile They, as if to say to each other, this guy is an idiot. I've heard of that quote. I know what that quote's all about. So, uh, uh, And probably, I'm guessing, some of you have heard that quote. Uh, and so what happens is people start to think, oh, I don't have to listen to you because I already know what that quote is. And then I say, oh, no, but you haven't heard the whole quote. The whole quote, uh, which comes from a friend of mine named Tim Galway, and he started the Inner Game series. He was actually one of the first sports psychologists in the world. Oh, but here, here's the whole quote. And I say, if you give a person a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach a person to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. But if you teach a person to learn, you feed him for a lifetime and he doesn't have to just eat fish. I like that quote. <laughs> I thought you would. It's a gotcha. When I say that, they look at me like, okay, you won. But that's a demonstration of, of how we tend out of our anxiety uh, to have a closed mindset. We don't keep it open long enough. I'll tell you one. also one of the tips for dealing with failure. I have a very good friend named Jim Mazzo, and he was the CEO of um, a, a ophthalmic drop company, Advanced Medical Optics. They, they make a solution called Blink. I think it's probably on the market in, in uh, Europe. And this must have been 15 years ago, and I read in the news that their top product was hurting corneas. And I read that my friend Jim had taken the product off the market immediately. And I called him and I said, Jim, I am so proud to know you. You pulled your top product, 
without checking with your board, without checking with anyone. That was so courageous. And he said to me, Mark, I am giddy with excitement. And I said, what? He said, I'm giddy with excitement. I said, Jim, you better close your door. People are going to think you're crazy. So he closes his door and I said, what do you mean you're giddy with excitement? He said, Mark, we're a good company. We make good products, but like all companies, we occasionally run into problems. We occasionally even run into disasters. And as I look back on my career, every setback, every disaster I've ever faced has only made me smarter and stronger and tougher. And I know this is going to do the same. And what I'm excited about is I don't know what that will look like. I just know it will happen. And so I thought, what an amazing approach to failure. And again, when I do presentations to audiences, and here's another exercise, uh, I will ask people, how many of you have had a breakthrough in life? You know, and especially in entrepreneur audiences, most of them raise their hands. And I'd say, keep your hands up if that breakthrough was preceded by a breakdown. And the breakdown was not pleasant. It wasn't invited. And some of them were, were downright scary. Keep your hands up. And about 80% of the people keep their hands up. And that's because most breakthroughs are preceded by breakdowns. Uh, and what happens, what is a breakdown? It means that something you were, a goal you were heading towards, a goal you were living into, your true north on your compass suddenly is ripped away and it feels like you're going to go into free fall. And really what it is, is you're not going into free fall. Uh, you're just going into pre-pivot mode, meaning your mind will readjust. It's like a Rubik's cube. You know, uh, imagine you have a Rubik's cube and it looks all terrific and you've got it all solved. And then uh, someone plays a trick on you and they just scramble it, and you think, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to solve it. Well, what happens is your mind starts to readjust to the new reality, and often that new reality is better. I'll share a personal experience with you, which I hope I've learned from. I write a lot, and sometimes I don't save the document and I lose it. <laughs> And I try and find it. And then I say, oh, I can't find it. I'm going to have to rewrite the whole thing. Oh, I had some really good, uh, good stuff in that first one. Oh, I don't know if I can recreate it. And so I go through a mini breakdown. And then when I decide, just write the thing, the next version is better. And I don't think I'm unusual in that experience. But the point is you have to see the breakdown as a catalyst to your getting uh, and having a breakthrough. So here's another tip to write down. And this comes from my background as a psychiatrist. When I was early on in my practice and 
we'd be in the emergency room. When someone came in and it looked like they could do something destructive to others or themselves, we would put them on something called a 72-hour hold, which means we had the ability to put them someplace for 72 hours, three days, so they wouldn't hurt themselves. Now, frequently, you put them in such a place and you're putting them on medicine, but it really didn't matter because if you if you put them on hold for 72 hours, often the destructive impulse would pass. So a tip that's really been helpful to me is that when I'm upset by anything, I in my mind, I say, put yourself on a 72-hour hold. And what that means is I say to myself, don't do anything to make it worse. Because if you do something to make a bad situation worse, you will miss the breakthrough because after you do whatever that thing is, you're going to have to apologize to other people for what you did. I'm sorry I screamed. I'm sorry I threw and broke something. I'm sorry I went out and drank. And so you're going to have to apologize to other people if you do something to make that situation worse. Or you're just going to even have to apologize to yourself because you feel ashamed. You might think to yourself, I can't believe I did that stupid thing again. So for me, that's really been helpful that every time something truly upsetting happens, I say, put yourself on a 72-hour hold, Mark, and don't do anything to make it worse. That's really good advice, and I, I can certainly relate to that myself. Um, and another question we were interested in, there sometimes seems to be almost an obsession with individual entrepreneurs, individual leaders, individual visionaries, even though it generally takes many people to build and certainly to sustain a company. Do you see any risk, Mark, that aspiring entrepreneurs might miss out on important skills or perhaps insights by paying too much attention to individual celebrity entrepreneurs? Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the things I, I you know, I, I know, I know a number of these celebrity entrepreneurs and one of the things that I sometimes confront them on, in fact, I belong to a, a group of entrepreneurs and it meets every, uh, on a Zoom call, about 250 people every Saturday uh, from around the world. And one of the things they often tend to boast about is they say, I'm unhirable. I couldn't work for anyone. And I say, really? Uh, I say, well, I'm, gl I'm glad you found a way to do something else other than fall through the cracks. But if you're so proud of not being able to follow people, what makes you think you can lead them? Because uh, you can't get anything done without a good team. And I'll share something with you. This is quite personal, but, you know. It won't be the first personal thing I've said on this podcast. Um, I am uh, I am on a role right now. Maybe the maybe the best time of my professional career, and it's because I have developed a team around a couple projects, and I've never had a team where everyone was fully motivated to the success of the project. Uh, nobody is selfish and they just um, want the project to be a success. Uh, 
And I'll, and I'll tell you, you know, <clears throat> and, and by the way, you know, that, that's the power of a moon vision, uh, a moon mission. Uh, you know, what allowed Steve Jobs to abuse people, this is not excusing it, is if you join Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, you got a chance to be part of history. You, you, were, you, you, were, you were riding a rocket ship, literally, with Elon Musk and SpaceX into the future. You knew you were part of something that would you could tell your grandchildren about. So I think having an amazing purpose like that can draw people. It doesn't excuse you treating them poorly, but the greater the project, uh, you know, the more you can attract people. And the key is to attract people who have complementary skills to you uh, that are the best at what they do and they're passionate about what they do. So a couple projects I'm working on is I'm, I'm currently writing two books for HarperCollins. And one of the books, uh, I, one, one of my seven books is PTSD for Dummies. And one of the books I'm writing is how to heal completely from PTSD. Not just recover, but heal from it. And we're so excited because with this global pandemic, there's going to be a lot of PTSD in healthcare workers and people who didn't get to see their parents die. It's going to be all over the place. And, uh, and coping isn't bad, but boy, if you can heal from it, and so we're all excited. So everyone from the publisher to the people I'm working with, I've, I've never had a team uh, where I had to prop up anyone. And uh, I keep thanking my, my team members for just being part of the team. So I think that's really important if you're an entrepreneur is to, uh, is to know how much you need a team and you really need to value and appreciate them. Fantastic. Um, this has been such an interesting conversation. I think that leads us nicely on to a final question that we had, um, which is we've talked a little bit about Steve Jobs and Elon Musk as some celebrity entrepreneurs, if you want to call them that. Um, do you see another such figure coming on the horizon or another such team, as you've pointed out, that teams are so important um, that are the people to watch for the future? Well, there's someone that we don't think of as a visionary, but he is, and that would be Jeff Bezos. And what is his vision? His vision was customer service. His vision was just make it convenient for people to get what they want at a cheaper price because his vision was people are becoming increasingly frustrated at being inconvenienced. People are increasingly frustrated at uh, feeling cheated out of a, uh, a decent price. Uh, uh, and so his vision was make it convenient to get people products at the best price uh, and you're going to own the world and he's on his way to doing that. That's why he's the wealthiest person in the world. Hmm. And do you see any rising, like less well-known stars coming up? There's a fellow named Mark Benioff. He's the CEO and founder of Salesforce. Uh, Salesforce is a great 
a company for, you know, managing leads and things like that. What I like most about Mark Benioff is if you see interviews with him uh, and you can, uh, I caught a couple at the World Economic Forum. Um, you, it, It's a person that is successful, but he genuinely cares. I mean, he's also been talking about this thing about changing this whole focus on shareholder value to stakeholder value. But I, I think... I think the world is hungry for leaders that we can look up to, uh, that don't disappoint us, that don't turn out to be self-serving, and uh, and that don't let us down. <clears throat> and I'm going to ruin the podcast right now by being sexist. I think the world needs to be led by women. Because when I look at the leaders in the world, uh, and I look at Angela Merkel, I look at Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand, what I've noticed about women as opposed to men, and maybe this is because women have children, I mean, men do, but women are mothers, is women are just about getting stuff done. We just got to get stuff done. And it's all on me because I can't depend on my bloke of a husband to do anything around the house. So I just got to get stuff done. And, and that said, you know, some of them, you know, women have told me, you know, thank you. That's very kind. But, uh, you know, some of the awful women can be awful to other women. But I just see women leaders as focused on getting things done. And I think male leaders, there, there's too much of this desire to win and compete. And there's too much pleasure they take in winning. And and the pleasure isn't about, oh, the mission won. It's I won. And I think it corrupts it all. So, uh, so in terms of what I'm hoping in the future is, and, and that's why I'm this aspirational executive coach, is to find those people and develop them because we need people we can look up to and have confidence in, feel safe, who don't disappoint us. Fantastic. Food for thought. Thanks so much, Mark, for speaking so honestly with us on this podcast today. Thanks, Mark. Well, thank you for having me on. Thanks very much again to Mark for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who have all been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us about your experiences with supplying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.